Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease and a whole lot of love, you transform 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. LED headlights, spoilers, whatever you need. eBay Motors has it at affordable prices. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride every time. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Welcome to the NASCAR NBC Podcast. I'm your host, Nate Ryan. Today here in Mooresville, North Carolina, at the headquarters, second floor of Front Row Motorsports, where I am joined by the general manager of the team, Jerry Fries. Jerry, returning a guest to the podcast, got very positive response for your appearance last year, so thanks for coming back. Ah, my pleasure, Nate. Always a pleasure to talk to you. And make sure I got this right. You're still general manager with I still this am. huge expansion. I, okay. Yeah, I All still right. am. <laughs> All right. General manager of a team that added a third car for 2019, Jerry, with Matt Tift. And in addition to that, when I talked to you last year, we were at your shop in Statesville, and now you've kept that shop for the moment, and you also have added this shop in Mooresville, which was formerly Chip Ganassi Racing many, many years ago. H. Scott Motorsports also was in here, and now Front Row. So take me through what the process has been like adding that third car and adding a new location as well. Well, I think uh, since since we last spoke, uh, Front Row Motorsports has uh, gone in and bought another race team that was in bankruptcy. Uh, operated that team through the balance of last year. Basically shut down that team, moved uh, some of the folks and, and uh, certainly some equipment over into our front row uh, race team. Uh, rented another shop, expanded into that third car to utilize that, that new charter. Hired a lot of people to uh, help with getting the, the inventory built up and, and to go take the cars to the racetrack and to take care of the business side of the third team. And so there, it's been a whirlwind for sure. We've uh, We've had a, an awful lot going on since about mid-August, and uh, as we talked about last time, I'm, I'm really big into cycling, and I think I've ridden my bike twice since <laughs> September 1 last year. So uh, so big into cycling, there's actually <laughs> yeah. a stationary yeah. bike here in Jerry's yeah. large office on yeah, the uh, elliptical machine. Uh, so. uh, about that's, that's about the only that's way the only time that you get on a bike anymore. <laughs> I get on okay. it anymore, so <laughs> I had to drag it up here. But, uh, but yeah, we've had a lot going on, and uh, we haven't started the season, I think, end finishes being exactly what we would want, but there's been a a lot of speed in the race cars and really been encouraged that even with all the expansion and moving and uh, setting up shop and adding people and all that that uh, you know I, I feel like we've still got a pretty competitive product out there. How many people did you guys end up adding Jerry with the new car again being Matt Tift and I would presume it's not just a, a road crew and a crew chief but it's the support people here at the shop and chassis suspension body all that stuff. It, it sure is uh, you know we went from around I, th I think it was 65 people and we're we're up to like 93 92 something like that so uh you know and, and the ch the challenge and all that is you know you really look for some economies of scale of adding that third team and that's the reason you do it in a lot of respects but racing out two different shops it's kind of hard to have that economy sometimes and that one guy that can uh do a couple things well he's over in, in our other shop in Statesville and and uh, and to back up a little bit our shop in Statesville we're still doing all of our fabrication work we just expanded uh, our fabrication capabilities in Statesville and and then the assembly set up uh, road crew business offices here in Mooresville so we're operating out of two shops right now which isn't perfect but um, you know we're making it work and you know it's kind of hard sometimes you got obviously two light bills and <laughs> yeah. two trash services and everything so uh, it's not as efficient as it could be if we're all in one space but um, uh, but we're making it work and, and just trying to keep keep the two two shops engaged communication obviously is a is a huge uh, component of of any successful business and so I've, I've tried to work real hard to keep that communication open and, and keep the fellas in Statesville is engaged with what's going on in Mooresville and vice versa. And just to put it in context for people who might not be familiar with the Charlotte area who are listening, Statesville is about 20 to 30 minutes away on I-77. 
depending on how traffic is on one of the worst yes. arteries in America's roadways. <laughs> yes. I'm sure sometimes that trip takes longer, but I, certainly that's not far, you know, a half hour to get from here to Statesville tops. That's not too bad. But when the cars arrive here, Jerry, just to sort of explain a little bit further, they're pretty much almost in finished state. And then when they come here to Mooresville, they just put like the finishing touches, the the wrap, uh, you know, what people would think of as the paint scheme and then load it on the truck here and, and send it out. And, and the crew chiefs have their offices here as well. Yes, that's correct. So, yeah, and I think it's a it's a little more than that going on here at, in the Mooresville shop. The, the cars come, I think anything that's manufactured, the body, the chassis, gotcha. that's what's done and over in uh, our Statesville shop. It comes over here and suspension's bolted on. Uh, driver seats put in all the interior components, fuel cell, engine, and then then set up and and uh, ready to go to the racetrack. So um, you know I don't want to sell a poor guy short here. No, Morris, definitely There's not. a lot going on here too. So uh, <laughs> this is the most important part, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, they have to be right well, when they get on the truck. Here. You know, it's all important. You yeah. know, if if it's not done right in the fabrication process, there's no way they're going to fix it at this point. So the body's just not right, and you're not getting the the arrow you need on the car. Uh, the chassis is not straight or you know built the way it should be you know you're never going to get the handle so uh maintaining that quality control with two different shops uh you know donnie wingo here uh, who's been a long time crew chief he oversees all of our car production he has spent a lot of time traveling between statesville mooresville and then over to roush uh staying engaged with what's going on with uh, our alliance partner in roush fenway so um uh, donnie does a fantastic job with just ensuring the quality control of the cars. And we've really been pleased to see our product as it, you, you get these uh, uh, scan maps off the Hawkeye system and, and the consistency in our cars and comparing them to the Roush cars, which we're trying to build to their spec. Uh, you know, I feel like our guys do a good job of that. Just to, again, frame it for people. When I drove up here from Charlotte, I got off on exit 35 and 77 and came through the, the winding road that leads up to the hill that this shop sits on. And went past Roush Yates, where all the engines come from for Ford teams and some other suppliers and vendors down here down the road. So I presume, Jerry, like having this new location, it, when you're expanding your staff by nearly a third, when you're going from 60-something people to 90-something people, being in Mooresville allows you to attract maybe a better talent pool than you could. Even though Statesville is only 30 minutes away, there are mm -hmm. some people who think... Yeah. That's the country. This, yeah. this is a little bit more like the city. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Even though it is that close, it, it can be a million miles away to somebody who's got to drive to work there every day. So, uh, and as you alluded to with the traffic, if you live in a certain part of Charlotte and you got to traverse through all that traffic to get to Statesville, it can be a nightmare ride. So being in Mooresville, uh, the thing I, I didn't really give a, a lot of thought that this would be play in our favor, but being in Mooresville, if you just look at a, at a map in, of Charlotte, uh, Mooresville is right in the center, so it doesn't matter where a person lives. Uh, we're pretty central to where they are. So it, it was from that regard, uh, you know, the folks that we had working for us out of Statesville, moving to Mooresville, a lot of times it was just kind of getting closer to their home. So they were happier with that. But with adding the new staff, it made those conversations a lot easier. Um, you know, we would get a resume in and, and it was like initially you would just ask, well, where do you live? You know, because you knew if the person lived, you know, North Charlotte right. or, or Huntersville or, or Concord or something, it, it was going to be tough to yeah. talk about. South Carolina. To I mean, there's yeah. some guys yeah. who live down Fort Mill. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, um, uh, so yeah, I, I feel like it's, uh, you know, really played in our favor. You know, the other factor at the end of last year, uh, you know, there were a couple of teams that had uh, had some significant downsizing and, and uh, we were one of the few in the industry that were actually upsizing. And, and so there was a, a large talent pool for us to kind of sift through. And, and uh, I feel like we really upgraded our talent. We, we really added some, some really strong people to uh, uh, augment the folks that the, the strong people we already had on the team. And so uh, I, I feel like through the manufacturing process with those folks we have, we've got a, a little more talent there, the, the road crew side too, and hope uh, you know we'll start seeing the dividends from that, just having uh, more talented people putting their hands on the cars. Well, like you said, you, you've already seen some faster cars, some good results. Michael mm -hmm. McDowell certainly in the Daytona 500 want to get to that eventually. But yeah, uh, yeah that, that depth of talent pool, I think I can recall this 10 years ago when the Great Recession hit and suddenly there were mm -hmm. nearly 1,000 crew members looking for work again, it changed the game for, say, like a Stuart Haas racing that just added Tony Stewart. I remember Tony Stewart saying, hey, suddenly this is like a buffet line. I can go out and really be selective in hiring. I, I'm right. sure it's not exactly analogous to what <laughs> you guys have here, but, I mean, that must be yeah. somewhat similar, yeah, right, that well, you could be more selective. Yeah, well, and I, I, that Front Row Motorsports, in my mind, started 
with the Great Recession at the end of 2008. And right. So Bob Jenkins, our team owner, uh, had been, I would say, more part-time racing uh, uh, with a, a, a smaller version of Front Row Motorsports that kind of started out a Jimmy Means race team. And uh, But 2009 really took the plunge to be a full-time Cup Series car owner. Guys like me that uh, were with the team that had gone under at the end of 2008 were looking for a job, and, and Bob, being an opportunist, was able to really take the plunge and establish a team. And so, you know, I was able to bring several guys that I worked with at Petty Enterprises that are still here today. And But, you know, we had a lot of DEI refugees and Ganassi people. And But, yeah, yeah very similar to that, that time that there were people that just had a, a ton of experience that were all of a sudden were looking for work that had been at organizations for 10 or 12 years that had just kind of been downsized out. No real uh, reason for them, you know, because of their work product, but more so just because of, of the company just downsizing. So it, it played in our favor. And, you know, I, I think we've got a much stronger group right now. In the decade that the team has been around, Jerry, how many of the core employees have you kept over those 10 years? Because we always hear about it's difficult as a small team our medium-sized team, because once you start doing well, the bigger team starts sniffing around and poaching mm -hmm. the guys who are really talented. Have you been able to keep some employees here the whole time? I don't know what number that would be, but <laughs> yeah. in your ranks? Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't have an accurate number, but you know, just off the top of my head, I mean, there's at least eight or 10 of us that were all part of that 2009 team that was, I think, 15 people so wow. <laughs> that are still here. And, yeah. you know, a couple came and went. And, uh, you know, I, I think one thing we've always offered at Front Row is, and Bob's given us this, is a good work environment, enough people to do the job so that, you know, you're not, even though we were, especially back in 2009, a, a real small team, I felt like, you know, we still had guys back in the shop that were building the cars. So when the road crew got back, they didn't have to build next week's car and just flog all night to just get to the next race and jump on jump in the car and drive to the next race so uh so we've always i felt like had a pretty good work environment where guys are, are working a reasonable amount of hours so you know some guys left for a little more money and maybe a bigger team and and just didn't like it and six or eight months later they came, came back. back but um but yeah there's a at least eight or nine ten of us that were all part of that initial team that are all still here that's cool and you mentioned the owner bob jenkins the man who signs the checks and, <laughs> and makes all of this work and we just did a little tour of the shop and you also talked about the hawkeye system which People also know as the optical scanning station. That's what NASCAR uses at the track to inspect the cars and ensure that they are within tech before the race. And this was, uh, you know, one of the, the things I heard last year when you were on the podcast, Jerry. People really appreciated the knowledge that you brought about the importance of the OSS, not just from fans, but I heard this from industry people too, about like, oh, I didn't realize till we heard him say that, that the OSS is not just about you check it one time at the very end and it goes to the track and it's within mm -hmm. NASCAR specs or what they're stipulating it you have to check the car throughout the build process so when i was with talking to you in statesville a year ago you were kind of debating whether or not to add the oss so here we are a year later you've got a third car and still uh, no OSS. <laughs> OSS. i'll let you say it so you still don't have an oss and i know that you said that you've talked to bob about like do we need one and uh, tell me about like what that process has been like and also i'll put it out there so you don't have to i mean OSS is a very significant investment. All of the big teams have them, although a few big teams like Ganassi didn't get it until mm -hmm. uh, several months into 2018. And I think it was I think Hendrick was the same way. Uh, yeah. Hendrick was the same way. And mm -hmm. I think that partially could be looked at as why some of those Chevrolet mm -hmm. teams probably were struggling. But yeah, it is a six-figure, three to four hundred thousand dollar investment. So it's it's not as if you can just have Bob go down to the store and <laughs> buy one of these. But yeah. uh, take us through like where the team is as far as that OSS equation a year later. Yeah. Well. The team members definitely <laughs> feel like we need one. <laughs> uh, Donnie Wingo certainly feels like we need one. Uh, uh, you know, I, I guess we've looked at it. You know, some teams have alliance relationships, such as we do. Uh, Levine does with Gibbs, and uh, Petty's do with RCR. So I don't know this for a fact, but I'm pretty doggone certain that Levine, Petty's don't have a OSS system either. So you, you have these alliance relationships, and part of what you're paying for is access to their technology. So we have access to the Hawkeye uh, OSS at, uh, at Roush Fenway. You know, it, it does make it inconvenient, though. You can build a legal race car without one, no problem. Mm -hmm. If you're trying to build a very competitive race car, you absolutely need one. So for us, the challenge has been trying to get the car scanned 
as often as possible through the build process so we can maximize the build of the car and still maintain uh, right. a legal race car. So roughly how many times do you need to check it to be that highly competitive? Is it at least like I think probably 3 or 4. 3 and, or 4. Okay. And and uh we tried to achieve twice uh Daytona cars. I know went more than that, but um we had time to do it with the Daytona cars, but for us t uh two times kind of once after the body's been hung on the car and the car comes back, the rest of the fab work's done, and then uh, uh, then we get it assembled with the suspension and all, and then we take it back over just to uh, verify that, hey, it did stay within the tolerances. And, and heck, even driving across uh, I-77 to go to Roush, sometimes you can get them out of tolerances that close. So, wow. um, so you, you've really got to be careful with the car and you know, just the guys leaning on fenders and, and different things like that can really change the shape of a front fender and, and uh, they make the, the the noses and tails and some of the sheet metal as, as thin as they can to still meet the rule tolerance but but that just makes them kind of weak too so uh, so anyhow we try to at least get them the OSS system at Roush Fenway two times before they go on the racetrack for us I, I know there's teams smaller than ours that, that certainly don't do that um, that might just take one occasionally to NASCAR's Hawkeyes uh, for uh, uh, just a validation that we're still building a legal race car. But, you know, I, I think if you're building the, if you're trying to maximize everything you can competitive wise for the, get the most arrow on the car, you, you've got to do it uh, multiple times. Yeah. And the logistics here, again, to, to explain to people is that two shops, one in Statesville, one here in Mooresville, Roush and NASCAR, where, where you can go for those OSS checks are in Concord, which is kind of like south and east of here mm -hmm. and so it takes about an hour to go from statesville to there about again depending on traffic you're at the mm -hmm. unfortunately the mercy of the north carolina yeah. department of transportation <laughs> 30 or 40 minutes to get there from here and so that can add up if suddenly yeah. you've got to make multiple trips yeah, yeah. It, it certainly can and and not just the car and the transportation of, of going over there but you know, we're sending some of our best and brightest people over there with the car, uh, whether it's a car chief or, as I mentioned, Donnie, and uh, um, or, or different leadership out of the fab shop, just so that if there is something that's out of line, you know, we can correct it right there. You know, the one thing we do have here, you know, I don't want to sound like we're completely backwoods with what we're doing, but, <laughs> but we do have a, a couple scanning arms with, or measuring arms with scanners on them uh, at the fab shop as we're building the car. They can actually scan panels on the car. So, you know, we know the areas that are going to be, you know, tight. And so we'll scan them there at our fab shop and get an idea that this is going to meet it or not. You know, I, I feel like we're still, even though we don't have the OSS st system here, we've got tools to still try to maximize what we're doing between the builds and but then taking it over there is kind of real world hawkeye how they're going to check them at the racetrack so um but yeah we've had a you know even though we don't have the system we've had a big investment in some of those tools to uh be able to measure the cars accurately yeah and i definitely don't want to diminish the importance of this place or the uh capabilities <laughs> yeah. of the no. history i mean this was chip ganassi racing before that, it was Sabco, Felix Sabatis. We were actually in, as you mentioned, Felix Sabatis' office, mm -hmm. former office from if you would have been here 20 years ago. And, uh, I t you know, taking the, the tour of the, the shop floor here, you showed me the pull-down rig. You got a, mm -hmm. a surface plate for every car. So certainly the capabilities are here for, uh, I think, achieving the success that you had here when it was, you know, Ganassi ran out of here, I think, until 04. So there right. were some wins that got here with Jamie McMurray and Sterling Marlin mm -hmm. in this place. No, yeah, for sure. And what was kind of cool was, uh, you know, Ganassi at one point was running three teams too. So uh, kind of the opposite side where we're at, where the crew chiefs and engineers are. I mean, there was three offices dedicated to each crew chief and engineer lineup. So it, it was good for us to, as we're expanding to a third car, that each crew chief kind of had the same space and they're all mm -hmm. side by side. Right. So you're kind of forcing them to communicate a little bit and they've got their own conference room and they're they're calling in every morning with Roush Fenway uh, talking about, you know, what's what's new coming down the pike. So, um, you know, th so this shop evolved into a three-car race team. So it's uh, kind of was easy for us to move in and not have to do a lot of wall building and different things like that. And that optical scanning station discussion, Jerry, one thing I, I kind of didn't touch on yet is that another factor in whether or not to get one is what's been the talk of NASCAR, really, the last couple of months now is the Gen 7 car being on the horizon for 2021, and will it even still make sense to necessarily have one of those machines on your own when that car comes in? Because that is expected to be a game changer in many ways, and certainly 
the hope from NASCAR, I think, and many of the teams and the race team alliance is that it will be able to reduce costs by some of those economies of scale that you're talking about. Your overview of what you know and what you think about the Gen 7 car and how it could impact front row motorsports. Yeah, uh, I, I think going back to uh, addressing the OSS system, uh, uh, you know, that's one thing. You know, last year we might have, I don't know that we were ever seriously talking about buying one, but you know, we were definitely having dialogue about it, kind of weighing out the pros and cons. And uh, now this year with the discussion around the Gen 7 car and the, the potential launch in 2021, I think a lot of the, there's been a lot of discussion of where, where do you go with the arrow on the car and what will the teams be allowed to do? And so I, I think as those decisions are made, then it's it's going to dictate whether you really need an OSS system or not, in my mind. And mm-hmm. and uh, so we're, we're kind of uh, definitely now tabled the conversation about having one of those systems, you know. But I, I, I think going back to the, the car itself, you know, I, I think front row, Jerry Freeze, I, I think, Man, I love it. I love the idea of it. I love the concept of it. If it definitely can bring some other OEMs in the sport, I think would be absolutely super healthy for teams, tracks, every person that that has a stake in in NASCAR. Uh, I I think it would be fantastic. And, uh, um, you know, and and even not necessarily that Front Row would look at doing something different with the manufacturer, but maybe somebody in the Ford camp does something different and it helps us move up the pecking order. And and so I I think it just creates opportunity when there's only so many charters. Bob Jenkins, we we get some flack now and then about why are we buying charters and doing all this stuff. You know, that's really Bob's main reason. You know, he wants to be in a position that if a manufacturer, if it's Ford, if it's somebody else, is really wanting to take a a big investment into our team, uh, we're sitting here with the charters to be able to. Great. Th- that manufacturer would need a flagship operation, and your hope is maybe they would maybe choose would you like us. the way Dodge chose Ray Abraham. Exactly. So yeah. uh, that's kind of been the backdoor method to our madness, and and you know we've had to lease a charter now and then because we couldn't operate three. But but anyways, I think going back to it, you know, I, I think the intent is to hopefully get some other OEMs to look at the sport with a more modern race car. There's also intent to try to take some cost out of the sport. So if that's uh, some of those costs might come through teams not having to spend so much on the aero side of it, um, i.e., do you need a OSS system and things of that nature? You know, I think there's going to be certain areas of the car that the teams will still compete against each other with and some areas that you know, won't necessarily compete with. And I think it, it's for a team like Front Row Motorsports that's, you know, we're established, we got great personnel, and uh, and it, it, it just something to level the playing field a little bit more will help us competitively at the racetrack. And so I, I think we're really in favor of it. We're, uh, I think, cautious uh, looking at the timeline. There's a lot to get decided with this car uh, in a pretty short window. And, uh, you know, there's going to be a pretty significant cost to step into that car uh, if you're obsoleting a lot of the equipment race cars that you currently own. And uh, so those things I, I think we're we're certainly nervous about how do you get from Homestead at, at 2020 into the first race of the year in 2021. Yeah, especially if that first race is earlier. Yeah. <laughs> as they're yeah, talking which, about it. Which could be earlier, yeah, yeah, from what we hear. <laughs> and uh, uh, so, uh, you know, there would be a, a lot of money spent, a lot of a lot of work to, to get to that point. But I think once you do, I, I think it could put a team like ours in a much better position to be competitive on the racetrack. And that's what we're here for. So, um I think we're for it. We're just, uh, you know, certainly I think like a lot of other teams and people in the industry, you know, just, just concerned about the, the timeline and, and how to make it happen. I, I know our, our partner in Ford is definitely very much in favor of it. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they, they would like to see a more modern component-wise car out on the track. If, if our partner is in favor of it and it, it drives some other OEMs to get in the sport because there is a more relevant car out there uh, that, that is relevant to what's at the showroom, then... I think it's fantastic. Yeah, Mark Rushbrook, who heads up Ford's racing program, oversees the NASCAR side, certainly is, has said that he believes 2021 is realistic for NASCAR. That's the goal that NASCAR has set. There's been some others. You know, David Wilson at Toyota has expressed a little bit of concerns about that timetable for development needs to be accelerated here a little bit and, and get some real-world testing being done. But David also is one, uh, along with NASCAR, who thinks, as you alluded to, Jerry, that if this works out as planned, it could bring in three, four more manufacturers. I mean, there's a lot of optimism that I'm hearing about this car in terms of how it can work 
with attracting some new automakers and, and the opportunities that, that are out there for that. So I know that you are part of the team owner council committees mm -hmm. that meet and there's probably limits on how much you can tell us from those <laughs> meetings. But uh, I, you know, I've just heard in generalities that the Gen 7 will make things easier by you won't need maybe as many cars, you know, the, the parts will come in a different way. Can What can you tell us about why it would work for teams as, as cost savings and why it might be more appealing to a new manufacturer? You know, I, I think there's a lot of stuff that's still kind of out there on the table to be discussed. And, and again, I, I, I think the big hitter is how to cut costs for the teams is, you know, are you going to compete as we do right now? We basically compete on every single nut and bolt on that race car. So we're, we're trying to maximize everything on that car. And so if there are some areas of the car that uh, are more specified to us that that we use this this part this component and uh, you know we don't have to put the development into it then there you would think there should be some cost savings in it, it it's hard right now when you you look at this car that we have and, and just thinking about you know when we went from uh, carburetors and to fuel injection and you're taking the same car but changing this significant uh, component of, of uh, how it operates and and uh, so it's not just swapping one part for the other but everything that kind of lines up with those parts so uh, so whenever you're changing one component within the existing car th there there is a significant cost to the team so with with this car you know if you're starting from scratch with a brand new chassis brand new everything yeah there's gonna be a lot of costs in that car sure. initially but you're not retrofitting over and over and over and over so uh, the big thing is 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 just deciding what areas are we going to race in? And so, and again, if we're not racing in every, like the pit guns, you know, the pit guns were kind of the start of it. So we're not racing pit guns anymore. So you know, it can be argued how much expense there was, but, you know, it, it sure appeared like there was a lot of expense in pit guns. There so. were some teams that were clearly spending <laughs> seven figures on pit yeah. gun development just to make their pit stops faster, yes. which is a yes. lot of money. Which is a lot of money. <laughs> so uh, yeah. that was kind of... I, I think uh, a first step or initial step by NASCAR to look at, all right, if we just take that off the table, what's the impact towards the teams? And so I, I think with this car, there's just a lot more opportunity to, to look at that. And, and, and still, y you don't want to go to a, an all-spec series, and uh, that's been done before, and it's, uh, you know, I don't know that there's a lot of enthusiasm for that. But, you know, I, I think you've still got to keep teams can, uh, crew chiefs and engineers are figuring out what's a shock spring sway bar combinations to get those things to handle right and you still got to have the pit crew element and the driver talent and all that stuff so that you can build a better race car and, and have a faster race car than the other guy and so I, I think that's the balance that's being weighed out right now you know where where does it make sense what what areas do we really not need to be racing in and what areas that we can race in without really breaking the bank so to speak and could it eventually and Roger Penske talked about this in St. Petersburg uh, with a few of us last weekend, could it eventually maybe help reduce inventory. NASCAR made the change this year with the engines to seal up the engines to help reduce yes. what Yates and TRD and Hendrick and everybody have to supply every week and uh, help save costs a little bit that way. Is it, could that be something where you don't have a large fleet of cars, you don't need as many parts, perhaps? I think that's possible. You know, I think if uh, if everybody in the you know agrees, I guess uh, that that you can do it and and maybe more standardize the chassis and not have uh, and maybe the bodies too, where y you don't have a speedway car versus a road course car versus this car and that car. And you know, I feel like like this year, man, we're all over the place with uh, uh, the 550 package, the 750 package, the aero ducks, no aero ducks, and you do not want to get in that situation. So we're, uh, I think, we're taking some steps to refine our package this year that have, have certainly um, caused a little bit of, of cost increase for us in specializing cars, let's say, but with the new package i think you know that's that's one thing that that I, I think could be addressed with is if if you just lock it in of this is the chassis you got or this is the mm -hmm. body you got then yeah you shouldn't need a, a whole lot of inventory i'm curious you know where the schedule goes uh, a lot of times uh you know you're building up inventory uh you know for us these west coast races are always very challenging you know with with the logistics involved and the variety of tracks and and you've got to have you end up buying extra sets of inventory or, or extra sets of uh, suspension, oil tanks, and things like that just to accommodate the West Coast swing that, you, you know, maybe you didn't necessarily need to do unless you want to go and right. just completely tear your car apart in between those races. <laughs> yeah. so just as a safety <laughs> net to send out there on the trucks 
for like say the Phoenix car after Vegas, just in case something happens and you need yeah. to have something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, just the timing of the races and having to yeah. get cars built earlier, accommodate the length of the drive out there and swapping out. So you know, we certainly would love to see a little relief in successive weeks of, of the West Coast races. And so I, I think there's some other things like like I just mentioned that can be done to to help bring some costs down. Do you like the idea maybe of again we're not sure if this is going to happen, but maybe starting with two races out west? Yeah. Coming to Daytona and then staying maybe in the southeast for a while? Yeah, you know, uh, I don't know. You know, I, I think you you have to. You know, if you look at, or I think you have to start. If it's going to happen, you got to start in the West Coast for weather reasons. And from what I understand, it sounds like our TV partners would like to see the season end earlier than it, what it does right now. I can confirm so, that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> if it's, uh, it's got to end earlier, you either got to start earlier or you got to start running multiple races during the week or cut races out. And, and, and certainly running races midweek can be challenging too, uh, again, with logistics. And we're okay with starting the season earlier if that's what everybody wants to do and you, you start it out west. I, I don't really have a lot of first-hand knowledge of any of that but yeah. uh join the club know, i don't it, think anybody does i it, think we're all just it, sort of speculating yeah. on 2020 i read it on point. twitter so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you don't tweet which is smart <laughs> yeah. so roger penske also told us jerry that his budget for an indy car like the top end budget for a championship indy car would be like i think six to eight maybe ten million at the very ceiling and obviously for a championship caliber cup car it's pretty much three times that he is hopeful that 2021 with gen 7 he believes also that gen 7 can be ready by that year that it would bring that cost down significantly is there a number when when you're in those council meetings or you know when you're talking to bob and representing him with mm -hmm. nascar is there a number you guys would like to see maybe as being a rough estimate of like what a championship caliber budget should be i don't know that anybody's fixated on a number as much but i'll say this uh in our team owner council meetings you know when we talk about areas we're going to race uh, mr penske and mr ganassi are, are quite outspoken about what they've done in indycar and nobody looks at the indycar i don't think looks at the indycar series as a spec series one place you go to get your chassis and mm -hmm. and I, I don't know all the parts and components very well with IndyCar racing, but I really think that's the direction kind of what's being talked about with the Gen 7 car. Dictate the areas that you know, you're going to race in, the areas you're not going to race in, and try to drive some costs down. So, you know, listening to those guys that have firsthand experience with that, it seems to have worked where, you know, you still have viable IndyCar teams that are still very competitive and uh, you know, their racing's been fantastic from what I see, um, the races I've watched and, you know, they've still got a, a loyal, passionate fan base. We're uh, all observing how they do it. And, and I think some of those, those methods will be replicated across our sport. But yeah, the goal would be to certainly, you know, there, there's so much money spent by the larger organizations like those on R&D and the development side of what we do. So if you're taking away areas of the car that you're going to develop, there's got to be less cost in R&D, I would think. Yeah. And I would venture to say just buying parts and pieces to go on the race car, uh, tires, certainly salaries. I think front row probably trades pretty close with uh, a lot of big organizations. But when it comes to R&D expense, we're nowhere near. So that that's the big difference right now. And they're just... They are just getting a little bit out of every area of the car, and it translates into four tenths of a second on the racetrack. So, yeah. but I would like to hope that that Delta can close down a little bit if they're not able to maximize all these areas of the car. No question, the R&D edge is where that comes out on the competition side on the racetrack. And moving from looking at two, three years in the future to 2019. New package this year, been a lot of discussion about that, about if it would help smaller, medium-sized teams such as yourself here at Front Row Motorsports. How do you think it's impacted you guys, Jerry, and has it had, and we've certainly seen Michael McDowell at Daytona, and, and not just there, but mm -hmm. he's, he's qualified well, and I, I'm sure you've been pleased with some of the speed in mm -hmm. your other cars as well, but, you know, JTG Doherty has mm -hmm. shown flashes, and Richard Childress Racing, which has not been quite to the elite status, they've shown flashes in qualifying and during races. I don't know if it's, if it's showing so much in the ultimate results, but do you feel as if the new package is helping smaller teams a little bit this year? I think it potentially can. You know, we've just had things we got to clean up that are kind of self-inflicted, whether it's costing ourselves practice time, you know, not getting through tech the week before and you sacrifice some time and happy hour and, and or just doing, having a silly thing wrong on the car for a practice session and had a kind of a crazy thing with the throttle pedal that bent and kind of got stuck on Michael at Phoenix um, and when he got in the wall. And so it, it's kind of hurt our 
end of day performance. But I think the potential is there for a smaller team. And, and I really, I mean, I have paid attention to the JTG cars for sure, especially uh, the 37 car has, has really showed a lot of great speed. And, you know, and then watching the children's cars, you know, that's the thing everybody's kind of building into their cars. Are you building them like speedway cars? Or are you building them more to just maximize that downforce? And what I here is that the children's cars are have been a little more on the aero side and they've showed fantastic speed in practice and qualifying but maybe not as much in the race and so and i, I almost think our cars lean that way too because our cars were qualifying well but maybe not racing that as well those are all things that we're all looking at with this new package of what is it is it handling is it just raw speed and you know we have uh, access to this smt data which is just a fantastic tool to I think if I was a driver, you know, where you can just basically overlay your laps against anybody else's laps at any time in practice or qualifying or the race. And and, uh, and it's really interesting. The engineers will show me uh, kind of our drivers compared against each other or compared against the faster cars out there or the other Roush cars and the difference in driving styles. And, and, Mm. uh, you know, I I really only really try to pay attention to our guys against our guys or our guys against the Roush cars, knowing that that's similar similar packages but man they're all over the place with the way they drive the car so uh you know last week at phoenix i felt like our best car through practice and qualifying was matt tith yeah and he had his first top 20 and he was off the brake a lot more than those other guys were so that's been a trend it seems like is who can stay off the brake the most and and that's going to be who gets their car driving the best and handling the best and you know momentum keeping the momentum up like they do in the truck series is key and so i think that's keeping your foot off the brake you know we've just got to get them handling where the driver's can keep their foot off the brake and just keep the momentum up and and i think we'll be successful and 17 had a great run at vegas i think it was and and he was awesome and and Mm -hmm. he was barely on the brake at all and and maybe not so good at phoenix but he's on the brake a lot so uh so it it just i'm just a dummy that sits up here in the (laughs) second floor and (laughs) doesn't know much but uh it, it sure seems to correlate into uh speed with this package so you know, we're we're working real hard with it, I think, trying to build more downforce into the cars and really work on that handling. And if it means we qualify 25th instead of 16th, so be it. So when you see all that driver data being overlaid, I guess the takeaway is there are many different ways to skin a cat and to go fast. There really fast. is. There really is. And, you know, just looking at our three drivers, man, they were <laughs> all three very, very different at mm. Phoenix. And, uh, I, and I'm not saying Matt's way was the sure, best, right, you know, right, that no. he had the most speed. You know, we... I, I think his crew chief, Mike Kelly, and him, they came up with a good package. Matt, um, since I started really following him last year, he, he does seem to excel at these the, the Phoenix-Richmond-type track. And But like you said, there's there's different ways to skin a cat. You know, I think there's a lot to be learned through just kind of comparing yourself versus the other guys. And I, I go back to um, last year at the Roval. You know, Michael's, Michael McDowell's an excellent road course driver, and Happy Hour was really, really frustrated with kind of how he was getting off one of the corners and – and I know he uh, he was following somebody on the track. And I can't remember who it was, Truex or somebody. And he went in, looked at the SMT data. It might have been the first practice on Saturday, and and and, and drove it just like Truex did the the next practice. And man, he was he was awesome then. He was back to Michael McDowell on a road course. So, uh, you know, and, and I have seen our drivers are, are really utilize that tool as much as anything. And or and you can uh, look at data for any driver. It doesn't matter if they're part of your alliance or team that, or manufacturing. That's correct. You mentioned, too, Jerry, the 17 of Ricky Stenhouse Jr. I mean, I'm somewhat remiss in neglecting to say he's been impressive, too. And, and the the alliance you guys have with Roush Fenway Racing, probably coming off last year, people would have said, eh, I don't know about that. But <laughs> this year, certainly, do you feel like it is making you guys faster? Because it seems like yeah. certainly that Roush car is, is having some success. Yeah, I, I think so, too. And, and beyond Ricky, I, I think Ryan Newman's been really good, too. And bringing Scott Graves back into the Roush camp from Gibbs certainly didn't get any dumber being in the Gibbs <laughs> camp. And, and yeah. uh, yeah. uh, so I, I think he's brought a lot of great ideas. And he was a really sharp guy that you know we were almost going to work with on the Chris Buescher program, but didn't. But the six car, I think, you know, it was very unstable last year with Trevor and Matt, and it just seemed like there was always something that was just not cohesive there. And but I, I think the six is is really solid right now and contributing a lot back and forth with the 17 and and uh, and certainly with Brian Patty and Stenhouse being together, I think three years now, they've they've really had a lot of speed. So it's it's always been a really good relationship even before we had an alliance with Roush Fenway. Um, we bought a lot of used cars and used parts from them, and we've hired you know several of their people. You know, Donnie Wingo came from there. Right now, all three of our crew chiefs. Like I think it was like six, seven or eight years ago, we're all Roush Xfinity <laughs> crew chiefs at the same time, yeah. you know. And they and, know uh, how the system works. Yeah, so yeah. they know the system, and uh, they kind of 
know each other's personalities quite well. And we've got this year, I, I, I've really, really enjoyed standing back and kind of watching the, the three crew chiefs interact because there is relationships there with all three of them uh, that go back 10 years and, and, uh, and with this product and with the Ford product and the Ford engineering tools. And, and, uh, but they, you know, like drivers, they've got their own way of doing it, you know, and, and uh, Mike Kelly, uh, is very hands-on, more, I would say, like an, an old-school crew chief of uh, worked his way up the ladder to be a car chief and to a crew chief, and he loves being around that car and, and having his hands on it. And uh, Seth Barber, that's uh, David Reagan's crew chief, you know, he's an engineer, and he's running sim, and he's kicking ideas back and forth as engineer and kind of lets his car chief handle the car. And Drew Blickensturfer came to us, and, and he just brings a, a – he's a super type A personality and, and a gr- lot of great experience and several cup wins under his belt. And, and uh, he's, he's really brought a passion and a fire to the 34 crowd and been a lot of fun to, to have involved too. So it's a, it's a good crew chief lineup. We, you know, we just got to figure out the speed in the car, where we need to speed in the cars. Uh, the drivers all seem to interact very well. And, you know, Matt brings his youthful enthusiasm to the program and, and a very openness, you know, how he's going to approach each track, which is nice to see. And, and hopefully uh, opens up David and Michael to maybe look at things differently, too, with this new package, too. You mentioned the enthusiasm and fire that Drew Blickensturfer brings to the number 34, <laughs> which, of course, is driven by Michael McDowell. Yes. I think fire is something that has been used uh, to describe Michael McDowell <laughs> a few times this year, fiery, uh, particularly after Daytona and Phoenix qualifying. Going back to Daytona, Jerry, Michael McDowell has a great run there, has the great finish. But, of course, after the last restart, he and Joey Logano exchanged words. Mark Rushbrook went on Sirius XM and said, as two Ford drivers, we had the intermediaries here and step in and hash things out. What was the front row perspective on all of that? I have to say, you know, my, my personal perspective, <laughs> watching the big screen when the last lap was going on, you know, and I, I saw Michael's move in turn three. And I kind of questioned it myself. Why didn't you go with the 22, you know? Uh-huh. And, and uh you know, but heck, I can't put myself in the driver's shoes. And I, I honestly, I just think Michael, he had been working with Kyle Busch there to, to get to that point. And, you know, Joey had kind of pushed him to the lead uh, a restart or two before and then quickly had pulled out from behind him and really caused Michael to have to shuffle, get shuffled to the middle and then work his way back up. And I think he worked with Kyle Busch and, and knew that him and Kyle together were, were a pretty good pair. And he just thought his best play was going to be with the momentum with, with Kyle. And I, I think it's just those last minute instantaneous decisions that a driver makes and maybe doesn't necessarily think I'm there to help the Ford guy, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, Michael, he, he got a car, you know, we were talking about it and, you know, he said, uh, hell, I'm not here to help David Reagan, Matt Tift or anybody win a race. You know, I'm here to win the race myself. Sure. And, and Michael's a, a fiery, passionate guy as we've kind of seen the last few weeks. And, and that's, that's why we hired him. You know, he's, he's really out there to, to make it happen and, and not just settle for 20th place or whatever. He's just trying to get everything he can and scratch and claw. And when we hired him, I, I said, man, I'm just glad you know, you're only going to push one of our cars around this year because, you know, <laughs> he's pushing them both around for years. And, you know, after Daytona, you know, everybody's questioning, why didn't you help the 22? And, you know, not, I think he, he regretted it that, yeah, I probably should have. But, you know, those things happen. And it didn't seem like uh, those guys were not that uh, enthusiastic about helping us win the race either. So, uh, I, I, and I still say, it, you turn the tables. If it was the other way around, nobody would have ever said a word that, Joey Logano didn't help Michael McDowell. So just because it was the way it was, you know, it it suddenly became an issue for a few days that poor Michael had to deal with. And I think it's a fair point that some fans make as well as to, you know, why should manufacturer alliances matter so much? Obviously, you guys both get support from Ford. Yeah. Penske gets probably more support than, and Stuart Haas, obviously that's well documented. They get more support than other Ford teams do, probably including Roush, but certainly you guys. How does that play into it? I mean, does Mark Rushbrook call you or just like, <laughs> I don't know, intervene in some sort of Ford meeting and just say, look, we know you're all driving our brand, but and yeah. but we also understand that you're all trying to win for, on your own too, yeah. right? Yeah. Oh, for sure. For sure. And, and Mark's great with it and um, Pat DeMarco and they traditionally uh, at Daytona and I think maybe the other Speedway tracks too, they'll have a, a meeting with the Ford drivers so mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not a part of it but you know kind of hear what's said and, and it's basically look out for each other don't do anything to you know harm your fellow Ford guy and we get to the last couple of laps all the gloves are off you got to do what you got to do to win you right. know and right. um, you know no different I, I think Daytona the second to last the next to last restart you know Clint Boyer could have pushed Michael up there instead he tried to make it three wide and and clear himself in front of Michael and cause a big wreck. And I don't know this, but I don't think Clint Boyer was called to the 
Ford truck to get yelled at. That he, <laughs> he caused a big melee, right. but uh, right. he was looking out for his own best interest. Sure. You know, he didn't want to follow Michael McDowell and trying to win and, the biggest race of the year. Yeah, that's what everybody's yeah, trying to do. Yeah. yeah, that's what everybody's trying to do. But I, I think the big message is, hey, let's look out for each other. And then we get to the end of the race, you know, it's every man for himself. And I think the only concern that Ford might have had was just the, the visual of it. It looked like Michael went out of his way not to help Joey Logano. And, and, uh, and, and in my heart, I don't think that was Michael's intent. He thought his best move was to follow Kyle Busch past those guys and, and push him past Denny. And the optics didn't look good last corner or last lap. I, I think Mark's been just such a huge supporter of Front Row Motorsports and does so much for our team and we've got a good place with Ford that, that we really enjoy and I hope we we bring value to them and you know so I, I don't want to do anything to disappoint those guys and, and but he understands that it's in heat of battle and I, I think his only concern was you know was were we purposely not helping and, and I don't think that was the case at all. Speaking of heat of battle we're speaking here on the Thursday between Phoenix and Fontana and almost a week after Michael McDowell was involved in the pit <laughs> skirmish after yeah. qualifying with Daniel Suarez. It's kind of unusual, Jerry, to have front row drivers in the middle of a controversy <laughs> like that that was pretty much the story of the weekend yeah. going into the race. So yeah, how's that work for you guys? I am somewhat of a subscriber to uh, there's no such thing as bad publicity. And yeah, is, that's is, true. Is that an example of that for that team and for this organization that like, hey, Michael McDowell in front row got in the headlines a lot? Yeah, yeah I don't know if it's the publicity you really want, but, um, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, but it happened, you know, and I, I think, again, it shows how passionate Michael is. As upset as Daniel Suarez was that, you know, Michael impeded his lap, Michael really felt like what Daniel did the following lap could have wiped out a race car, you know, maybe hurt a driver, you know, it, it was, it was pretty bad. And, and, you know, and then you hear the audio, you know, the spotters coaching them on when Michael's coming and how to purposely impede get him out of his lane and and uh so it, it could have been bad and that's what michael was upset about michael was very upset about it i, I was as shocked as anybody and i wasn't there i was watching on tv when i see michael <laughs> going through the foot of the throat there and and uh <laughs> and seeing uh, drew pick up daniel suarez yeah and yeah the, the whole thing was uh whew, man that was uh something else and and uh uh, very out of character for Michael, without a doubt. We try to sell Michael as the good guy, the good Christian driver that, um, <laughs> you know, with gay love sponsorship, and he literally wears his Christianity on his sleeve, and, and so uh, certainly very out of character, And, and uh, but I, I think just shows the passion that he has, and I'm sure if he had that one to do over again, he probably wouldn't, but, you know, he, he was very, very, very upset at the time, and I think he just turned around and saw Daniel coming and thought Daniel was coming to fight. But yeah, that was that was probably an unfortunate incident that um, I don't know that we really would seek out that kind of publicity, but it happened. And uh, but I know I, I've had different folks uh, in my little orbit that have come up and said, "Man, I love that fire that kid has." That's why people watch racing. Yeah. Passion, passion, yeah. and emotion. Sometimes Egg. it boils over in ways you can't control. Exactly right. Yeah. Well, well, in here then, like certainly you want to add a fourth driver so you can have even more of that. <laughs> Just kidding. But um, looking forward, no. Jerry, <laughs> Yeah, you've, you've expanded to three cars this year. You mentioned about Bob positioning himself in a way that could look good for if a manufacturer comes in or if Ford decides to to expand the relationship here. Um, what what does the future hold, do you think, beyond 2019 right now for Front Row? Any chance that you guys might look at another car at some point? Uh, another uh, a fourth car? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, I don't think so. Uh, you know, I guess the rules would say we could. We're biting off a lot right now to mm -hmm. do what we're doing, and I won't say that we've got all the funding we need to do what we do, and, and, and Bob kind of is our backstop for that. So and, Sure. And, uh, you know, I, I, my goal <laughs> since I've been working for him is to get him to not be the backstop for what we need to go race with. And so I, I don't know. I mean, you never say never. I, I, I'm sure down the road that would be a goal of Bob's if we were ever positioned to have a fourth car. But foreseeable future, we are where we're at. And uh, we, we just got to solidify all the funding around these three cars, honestly, and uh, and be able to maintain that long term. And so that's more our goal than anything. And with Ford, we, we've been with them for 10 years now. And so that's that's just uh, been an incredible relationship that uh, really began with Doug Yates and Roush Yates. And they've been a, a huge ally to, to everything we do. And, you know, talking in the garage, I, you know, I feel like our relationship for where we are in the grand scheme of things is, is really pretty good, you know, compared to some others. And it's because of people like Mark Rushbrook that see the value of 
having front row motorsports in the camp and our, I will say our drivers do a, a lot of behind the scenes development work um, with simulators and wheel force cars and things like that to uh, try to bring some value back into the overall program for Ford and, and so we've we've really enjoyed that relationship for a long time and you know not, what I would love to see more than anything especially if more OEMs got in the sport if somebody bolted from the Ford camp and we were yeah, able elevated. To, to step up mm -hmm. and because and, uh, they're a great partner to have for sure. Okay well we'll certainly keep an eye on that in the future again with this Gen 7 car and see how it'll impact you guys. Uh, Jerry always appreciate your candor your honesty thanks for coming on and spending so much time on the NASCAR NBC podcast once again. My pleasure Nate. Thanks again to Jerry Freeze. A lot of insight into what it's like being a mid-pack team in the Cup Series. As Jerry mentioned, 10 years invested in NASCAR at Front Row Motorsports for team owner Bob Jenkins. So it'll be intriguing to see if that team can get to that next level. And we appreciate Jerry giving us a window into that journey for Front Row Motorsports. Thanks as well to Jeff Dennison and Lynn at Front Row Motorsports for helping coordinate that conversation at the team's new shop in Mooresville. The NASCAR NBC podcast is available on Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you download your podcasts. Please leave us a rating and review if you like what you're hearing. That really helps us out, and there will be many good things coming down the pike here on the NASCAR NBC podcast. Not going to jinx it and tell you who they are, but I promise there'll be several appealing guests upcoming through the next several weeks with personalities from NASCAR, IndyCar, and IMSA. So we always appreciate the support, and we'll continue to try to bring you those conversations. And as always, if you have any feedback for me, you can send it to me on Twitter, at Nate Ryan is my handle. Thanks again for listening to the NASCAR and NBC podcast. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30.